0: Welcome to Beautiful Weirdos, the podcast by, for, and about people who are beautifully weird. I'm Fiora, your host, Chief Weirdo, and self-proclaimed armchair intellectual. Let's get weird, people. This conversation was a special one for me. Um, As I allude to during the interview, I actually met Mark after... There was an uncomfortable situation that I experienced, and the way that he and uh, his team responded to it gave me a lot of hope about the way that companies are evolving to really take care of people. So, I had wanted to bring him on the podcast before I even launched the podcast and in our conversation we we really dove into the future of work like what that means it's something that we spend most of our waking hours doing and it's really rather a new concept for uh, the idea of well-being to be something that's that that's a center of focus in a company culture it's really just only in the last like 15 20 years which is very, very young in the grand scheme of things. So we really dove into examining the intersection of people's we- welfare within an organization, which really requires a restorative justice lens and the sustainability and ultimately success of a given business. Um, then we also kind of dive in end to talking a little bit about the importance and the worthiness of imperfect progress. Mark Palmer is a thought leader author, consultant, and entrepreneur who specializes in leadership and organization change management, strategic performance, and workforce solutions innovation. He's the co-founder of Higher Direction, a data-driven staffing solutions provider, and a labor genome, a talent alignment mapping technology. Mark is a principal with Metcalf and Associates Inc. focused on leadership development, coaching, team building and organizational effectiveness. He is also a founding member and facilitator for the Integral Institute, an international think tank created to combine progressive organizational research with practical applications in both the public and private sector. Mark is co-creator of the position success indicator and co-creator of DevQ applied talent performance metrics. He has over 20 years of experience working with Fortune 500 companies in strategic alignment, team development, market research, and data analysis. And if he sounds like a superhuman, you would be correct. He's pretty remarkable and I'm really looking forward to exposing you to his work, connecting you to his his brilliant mind. and uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation that we got to have. So, I'm very excited for our guests today. We actually met under not-so-lovely circumstances, but part my interaction with Mark was what turned it into, I don't know if, like, lovely, but, like, a unique experience. Um, And I think that it's, I think, one, it's a super, super topical conversation to be having as we're watching a lot of social critique around, capitalism and business practices and different interests at play in businesses, but I want to talk talk about the intersection of integrity and entrepreneurship, leadership, business, which I think Mark is, well, in my personal experience, somebody that handled, I experienced basically maybe like an experience of unprofessionalism with a client of his, I believe, Um, someone working in an organization that's one of his clients. And the way that this organization handled this moment of unprofessionalism or, or even sort of, I would say like low grade breach of trust was unlike any organization I had ever experienced. So in one respect super sad that organizations don't, um, have protocols in place or don't even like take responsibility for addressing when these things can and eventually will happen with clients, with different stakeholders. But it was such an, it was almost jarring in how high integrity the experience I had after like the incident, Uh, And so I wanted to have Mark to come in here and talk about, A, like some of the ways that he helped design that process and guide that process for his client. Uh, Some of the ways that he showed up personally in helping repair that rupture with me. Um, And I think what I'm hoping is that as we dive into this together, that we will uncover and talk about all some of the forces at play. Welcome, Mark.
1: Thank you. That's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. But looking forward to this.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the jumping off point would be um, that was something that you'd been specifically brought into this company to help them develop was how to address breakdowns, like human breakdowns. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You know, organizations are interesting it's an interesting intersection of activity and getting things done. And it sort of has its own sphere. Kind of the way I look at human experience generally is I kind of break things down and look at it uh, relationally, professionally, and personally. And organizations, and, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of history to why and how organizations do things the way they do. I mean, you could trace it back to something like the Industrial Revolution and most of organizational life was really about, you know, manufacturing and productivity and objectively um, operating on, you know, uh, metrics that really are devoid of interpersonal realities. Let's just say it that way. And so most of the history of work, of doing work, really... Had this implicit to it, there's this sort of divorce of cultural or interpersonal realities. Let's just say the vast majority of that, uh, particularly in the 20th century. So it's only really been the last couple of decades that leaders and academics have really looked at organizational life and started to really deal with the fact that there's a, still a humanistic aspect to doing work. And so we're, we're really, generally speaking, we're pretty bad at it because we're pretty new at it. So all of these things, but you know, but, but humans are going to be, are going to do human things. And so all, you know, a lot of interesting and bad behaviors have been happening in workplaces for a very long time, but there's really never been a space created to actually deal with them. And to help resolve them and to help people navigate these things when they come up. And so this is a relative again, it's a relatively new phenomenon. So part of what I try to do in this newer movement is to help organizations become more holistic and really operate more holistically so that they're not just about the productivity and efficiency, but they are also about how do we maximize the psychological safety of of the people working here and we maximize the psychological and emotional safety of, of clients that we work with and keep high integrity on the human side. And, you know, so we're just very brand new at that. And so that, that's a lot of what my work is about and trying to create some level of integration uh, between real interpersonal human experience in the context of actually doing work together, collaborating to get things done. So that's sort of the basis of uh, what I was doing with the client when uh, you and I came together.
0: Well, and something you just said, right, was, was really like the humanistic, holistic, because, and this was what was so different about my experience in that moment was, was that it didn't feel like I was the subject of damage control. It felt like the process design for handling rupture was Was actually intended to take care of everyone involved Mm, it was really taking care of people and so when you said that about psychological safety is i didn't feel like i was being handled i actually well just what happened is there was a misunderstanding uh, with a a man in this organization and when i shared this with someone else in their leadership immediately they immediately responded Nobody challenged my experience. I was immediately believed, which just as like a woman in the world was really fucking new. (laughs) (laughs) And, and then also the leadership was, the leadership was, we're not just going to chastise and punish this person. We're actually going to come from this like deep place of love and recognize that there's like ignorance, that there's like organizational shortcomings here of the expectations we set with the people within our ecosystem and that we're putting in positions of leadership. And they were like, and we will take care of this. Like we will handle this. We will make sure the training happens. We will make sure that it's very, very clear. And we will actually like really take care of this person uh, with whom I had the misunderstanding. And then also multi, I, I think three different levels within the organization, I was invited into conversations where I could be heard, where I could share what happened, where I could voice any needs that I had and where I was also, it was also explained to me exactly how the situation was being handled and it was complex and it was a little bit messy. And I think also what it did is it opened where I don't feel any ill will to this other person because I was aware that it was a mistake made in um, his blind spot. And I don't think he is an ill will till it's me, but it was just it was like this like collective growing moment and and it also really awakened a lot of faith in me where that mm. I mean I had I think I told you that I had like a pan I had like a little bit of a panic attack as this was starting to all unfold under yeah. my feet because my only experience before that had been watching people dissent from uh like a company culture and becoming pariahs or like she's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, or I experienced that. I've experienced that in social settings as well. And it was really yeah. very mature and sophisticated.
1: I, I think your intuition is, is spot on in terms of really identifying that from an institutional level. We try to, <laughs> you know, we really attempt to bake in response mechanisms uh, so that everyone's experience is honored It's not a framework sort of laden with shame. And, you know, as human beings, we carry this stuff, right? We carry these shame dynamics because it's it's sort of our, it's our inheritance, right? Most of human history is a tale of scarcity and resource hoarding and, you know, part of dealing with the scarcity and resource hoarding and power is safety of numbers and the safety of numbers creates interesting belongingness dynamics. And we carry that, you know, the work world is built on Those uh, those dynamics. And so there is a lot of outcasting and shaming. And the way we deal with things is so punitive, you know, historically. And again, organizations are just microcosms of society. And so all of that stuff we had to be very acutely aware of in terms of how do we institute a space, a container that instantaneously honors uh, the experiences of everybody involved in a way that it becomes a dynamic, teachable moment. But there's also, there's just, there's just an incredible holding and it has to be something completely different than what everyone experiences and triggered by in society. Right. You know, mm-hmm. all of us come from a certain family of origin dynamics. You know, there's, there's a lot of sort of psycho emotional uh, baggage that just comes again, with just being human, at at so many different levels and it's all implicitly baked into the workspace. So we had to pull all that apart and try to create a framework that would be immediately responsive. Um, And it's, you know, it's, um, it's humbling to know that uh, when something does come up and I think you really, you really nailed it when you said, you know, extremely sad. And at the same time, an opportunity of when we do things a little differently, when we, approach it with a different type of intentionality and a really a deep, deep holism, then new things can come out of that. So it's, it's also very much a discovery process as well. So I think all those intentions come without the sort of the punitive baggage and allow this, this other kind of magic to take place and everybody can grow from that. So, you know, it's a, it's a new way of doing, it's a new way of, um, I think for organizations to, attempt to um, operate in a way that's very, very different, but it takes a lot of work. It takes an incredible amount of work. And that's typically the challenge in this particular organization. um, The nature of the organization is such that, you know, it, it sort of deals with introspective stuff. So Mm -hmm. I think, I think, I think the organization had a a bit of a leg up there, but um, you know, I've had clients and I've, Advised companies that dealt with some introspective stuff. And, you know, they were, this was still a sort of a blind spot. This is still divorced from that. So, there again is the opportunity for integrating something that's very naturally a part of human experience and not separating it out the way the typical work world has. Interpersonal realities are just, just as much an integral part of experience as the, as the activity that goes on at work. So, yeah. So, it, I, I'm grateful that. I'm grateful that it was, it was the type of learning opportunity that it was, and that growth came from that. So it's a beautiful moment.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's and it's profound. It's super profound. And I, I think too something you said at like the the top of this conversation was along the lines of we're bad at it, and it's because this is actually. A, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think it I'm, I'm not. A business culture historian but i would go out on a limb to say that this is like the first time me at least in recorded human history where we've done business this way where we're not where we're moving away from humans being like cogs in a product in a production machinery to oh yeah like these are human beings that are spending most of their waking hours in these Mm. these ecologies I see a college yes. podcast so much <laughs> um, and, and, and like quality of life is important. And anyway, yeah, um, I that's also, right. All of that. Right. Yeah, if, you have a, if you have a thought on that, like come on in to respond. And then I have another burning question.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think you're, I think you're spot on, um, you know, somewhere around the seventies, Globally, and I would say particularly in academia, there was just philosophically this shift toward inner life being just as real and important, a shift toward perspectivism or, or at least honoring perspectives that there are these different, there's a kaleidoscope of different ways to actually view the world. There's, a, there's different types of sense making. You know, this mm-hmm. sort of, you know, this started to break out in academia, but, you know, it filtered out into the broader culture and became just an enduring feature of of what we started to talk about as societies and what's culminated now and stuff you see around mental health. And, you know, how do we honor other cultures, get beyond ethnocentrism, you know, a, a lot of things, you know, xenophobia a lot of things that have really plagued us as as human beings. And we're just getting to the point where we're able to get beyond that. And, you know, like I said, that, that happened roughly four decades ago, four or five decades ago, but as an enduring feature, it just said, Hey, you know, this inner life is just as a valid as external quote unquote external life. And by external life, I mean, let's just use something like Maslow to kind of describe external life. So we're talking about safety and security, status, and achievement. That sort of defines most of human experience, right? And most of human experiences mm-hmm. from an identity standpoint is, hey, you know, we're going to validate ourselves by those things. Are we safe, secure? What's our status? And have we achieved? And then there come these other stages where we're looking at, um, but who am I really? Um, There's sort of this introspective, reflective, uh, what am I about? What's important for me as a a human being that's that's growing? Oh, look, I am growing. There is growth. Um, So the inner questions became just as important as the outer questions, and that's the first time it's happened, and I think you're seeing that reflected in work. Thank God. Yeah. So you had a burning question, (laughs) though, on that
0: well so my next question was going to be as as someone that you've been in this you've been in this space but both well you've really married this i think what we might have formerly thought of as more of like a philosophical space with entrepreneur with with business you come in and you you work Mm -hmm. with client clients to, to start to weave these humanistic values i don't know if i'm using that word right but whatever.
1: Yes. But I'm
0: curious, do you also see a connection with profitability?
1: Mm. Flesh that out a little bit more for me. Okay. You've peaked my, uh, tell me a little bit more about that. And and how would we define profitability?
0: Yeah. So I think my question would be along the lines of like like you were just saying the external definition of success and i would say that it i think that mm. this is what we're watching the death of is the bottom line right is is right, is right. the yes. is the revenue more than the expense? and exactly. oftentimes well like, put. the waste well put. that companies used to try to cut was like safety expenses and labor expenses mm-hmm. and oftentimes That's it's right, people who are getting that short end of the stick, but, like, yes. but at least yes. in my sort of armchair economist's perspective is... And you're dead on. Uh, that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that that's very short-sighted and it um, really assumes a finite pie. It is. It assumes that yes. there's sort of like a finite amount we can make rather than what... So I guess that... So like the, my hypothesis is that... So if we... There might be more overhead in caring for our people and creating a culture that really like tends to their well being, that like acknowledges rupture, that acknowledges racial, socioeconomic, historical systems that are obviously going to be a play in these organizations that are created by people who are products of these systems. And we start yeah. to act what, if we like actually expand the budget and take care of our teams and people better. My hypothesis would be that that would wildly shift the game around the capacity of that company to innovate, to create revenue, to take care of its clients or partners or stakeholders, yeah. etc. Yeah. So that's sort of like where my hypothesis goes.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm curious if mm-hmm. you've seen
0: that working with these companies.
1: That's a great question. So I would say... On the whole, yes. Although the path to get there has not been in any way linear. It's been take five steps forward, <laughs> take four back. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. How could it be? And, 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 you know, interesting in all sorts of weird selective pressures in weird sorts of places. You know, here's one, here's one concrete example. Workers, professionals are keeping organizations, uh, Bottom line behaviors in check because they're no longer just valuing getting a paycheck. They value their time. They want, they want wealth and the quality of their life. So now this impacts the way organizations incentivize, you know, professionals coming on board. And professionals like, hey, I really don't care about the paycheck. I need five weeks' vacation. If you don't have that, then I'm gonna go bounce and go somewhere else. Well, all of a sudden now, you know, that little carrot. Complete is, is off the string now in an organization that may have, say, 30 years ago, had kind of used that as an incentive to, you know, to, to really string along professionals and sort of create a scarcity environment in, in the workforce in terms of, uh, job availability. But professionals saying, well, I, I really don't care or I'm going to go start up my own thing. So that's really shifted the Mm -hmm. way organizations prioritize what the bottom line is. And so and then, of course, the second part to that is um, and and you kind of alluded to this, is that as new businesses come up, they do want to do better. They they their values now are shifting away from external values and, you know, social entrepreneurial, you know, entrepreneurs are blowing up, you know, the changes in the future of work. So, you know, people want to innovate there's, there's more of an emphasis on, on discovery. So between professionals saying we want something different and between new companies springing up that have a different value system, we are seeing these sort of selection pressures for just generally doing better at the macro level. Now, obviously there's a lot of messiness in the transition. There's a ton of messiness in the transition because, there are, and, and this is largely due to technology. So, technology is sort of a third factor here. Technology is creating new realities in organizations while simultaneously disintegrating some old realities, and that includes jobs, it includes organizational structures, all sorts of things, everything that you could name in, in between. in organizations uh, are changing. Even you know, even the pandemic has changed remote life and what working is meant. And most organizations are going toward different business models now. So it used to be that I would work with an organization. We would talk about improvement plans that involve two to five years. And now it's, you're talking six months to 18 months because things are just changing that quickly. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's like turning the Titanic. Um, so there are just different sets of challenges too. And then, Of course, with all the sort of, you know, uh, sociocultural unrest around, you know, the last couple of years as well, um, you know, workers have felt empowered to approach leadership in a very, very different way. So, you know, the command and control models of leadership that, you know, were sort of prevalent in the past, those are very different now. It's much more. Honestly, it feels like they're collapsing. Oh, Sorry. They are collapsing. No, you're absolutely right. It, it It is a much more collaborative in some sense. And even now, a lot of professionals are being sought after as advisors in some cases. Um, You know, I mm-hmm. work with large organizations where leadership is like, hey, we're just going to empower you to make certain decisions. And if you can just come at, come with us with sort of uh, decision logic, you know, why, here's what I think we should do and why, then that that's the way we want you to kind of flow with us. I mean, this is all like, Halt on a dime screeching, you know, in terms of the historical timeline, it's like this is like the last five to 10 years. So a lot of people are like, whoa, I don't know how to flow like that. So we're, we're just seeing little breakdowns all over the place at the micro level. But but the the aggregate result is that there is a, there's a definitive shift in what organizations value and the onus on them to behave ethically and be and and move with more integrity is, you know, it's unavoidable now. So a lot of organizations now in earnest, whether they want to or not, um, some of them just say, hey, look, I'm compliant. Look, (laughs) give me my goodie card. You know, (laughs) there's a ton of that still. There's absolutely a ton of that. Um, I see that a lot in diversity and equity and inclusion programs and so on. That's to be expected. Again, the shift in the cultural, ah, no, this is a good thing. That typically is a lag behind when the actual... Sort of socialization of the thing happens. There's always a lag where it's actually a meaningful. Mm. No, no, no. That's this is a really good thing. We should do this.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just what I keep hearing, and I keep it. It feels like it's that little that like swoop in the exponential curve of change, you know. And I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, yeah. this is this is business's puberty, right? Where
1: yes, um, I love that. Yeah, this. Th- I'm gonna. Co- you need to coin that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's definitely where it is. That's definitely where it is. The voice is changing. There's hormones raging. I mean, it's... (laughs) Take it...
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's like you can't be immature and beat up the other kids on the playground anymore. Like, the other kids are becoming adults and they're pushing, like... And society's pushing back. And I really see this... Basically, this demand for maturation from consumers. I I feel that really acutely in my generation. And Gen Z, for sure. They're like, you're not ethical you're out of here and then you're out of here emergency. absolutely and <laughs> and and also from employees right we're seeing this huge pushback of like mm. we are human beings you need to prioritize our safety and our dignity and our well-being or you know i mean you see these like nation these strikes all across the at least the US right now yeah and it also sparks these stories that i hear um uh, where cuz i i i kind of feel like like a truffle hunting pig <laughs>
1: where like <laughs> like i find these stories
0: right so there is there is this grocery chain in portland oregon and they they actually to me like just the, the snippets i would get people would work there and they'd want to work there forever because they had dental and vision benefits and health yes. benefits yeah. and PTA. Mm. Like they had all, they had a um, new parent benefits. They have uh paternal leave for, I don't know what you say for both parents or like
1: yeah way beyond the what
0: the, the U S asks for parental leave. There we go. That was the word. And, and I found out that they had this thing where, so if an individual went 90 days, three months, whatever their sort of like safety cycle was 90 days without an accident, they would get like a free pair of shoes and they didn't see any data come back that that was increasing safety or like reducing numbers of accidents in the workplace. Mm. And so they went to the employees and they basically asked like, how do you think we could do this? And and how could we incentivize this? And the employees employees were like, well, what if as a team, we got an additional day of paid time off for every three months, every six months? And what that fostered was teams looking out for each other. And it fostered leadership, trusting the employees to know the needs that are on the floor. It creates a safer workplace, happier people working there. So then you as like, you know, you're your getting your kimchi and your in your almond butter <laughs> see these happy, wor- you know, and, and so I'm sitting around like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, let's just do this and everything. I don't like, why wouldn't you want to do this? And they, and they say, cause right. Workers comp is a massive expense, but instead of it being, yes, instead right. of being like, oh, we'll punish people. It was like, are there data driven, hu- like human centered data driven yes. ways that we can actually shift the waste, the expense. Yes. So it's actually a win, win, win. Yeah, For co- company that's right. And, and
1: teams. That's, that's right. You highlight something so critical, which is that and, you know, in my company uh, called Higher Direction, uh, we're kind of a data intelligence. We we look at people's uh, what we call operational DNA or operational sense making and how they can best um, interact with the organization, um, their best fit. You know, we look at what we call alignment. And, you know, there are just some common themes, but one of the biggest common theme that we look at is, and we sort of tell our clients is that everybody has a seat at the table. So everything's workable. There are workable solutions. And how can we channel our energy into this sort of energy is conserved type, you know, we don't need to destroy things or just, you know, abolish things but there maybe there's a there's a spirit of transference where can we get alignment and and how can we start to get alignment across all sorts of different organizational functions among people programs so programmatically like you said something like compensation programs and part of that is getting the getting the opinion and getting the perspective of the people that are actually doing the work so bravo to companies that do that but like I said, it ties into this general philosophy of everything has a place and all people have a place in the organization. And so it is about this generative preservation of really highlighting um, where there are opportunities for alignment. And so, yeah, so I I love what you said because that really is sort of a core philosophical aspect of what we kind of work with clients as a shift in mindset to look at the realities of being a sustainable organization uh, in ways that have been that depart from, you know, how it's been typically done, um, which is always sort of just like you said, cut bait at any expense. It's like, no, no, no. There's this is like, you know, you're you're in harmony with your environment as an organization. There are different ways to innovate. There are different markets to turn over a niche and explore. You can change your identity. You're not it's not a static Uh, relationship with the market, with your people, with uh, the organization is a living thing in some sense. Yeah. So I love that you brought that up because that really is a hugely important thing that we see helps to, as at least a good first step to change and begin to transform and expand the mindset of organizational leaders around, hey, there are opportunities to do things without completely tearing things down.
0: Oh, yeah. We can talk about this forever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um so i think what i'm curious good stuff I, i'm like i'm like oh it's the difference it's the difference between eliminating waste and innovating the process and then i you know whatever. yes yes yeah,
1: yes yes but yeah
0: so i guess what i'm curious is so i mean to me i grew up with uh my dad was a organizational development oh management yeah. and process improvement expert oh wow so i heard this stuff all the time so i'm like well obviously like one time we walked through tsa together and i got and he had the he had tsa pre when it first came out and i didn't and i got out the other side and i said how much longer did i take and he was like how'd you know i was timing you <laughs> <laughs> and i was like because you're you're comparing the efficiencies of processes like you yes know? yeah i um, love
1: it he, oh i love it he
0: was like he was like he was like, You took eleven extra minutes. I'm like, great. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> um, so this this seems
1: it's great.
0: This seems like a <laughs> no brainer to me, but I think my question is, right? So most of your clients, because you work with companies of all sizes. I know that um, a Mm -hmm. lot of them have been like fortune 500 companies. Do they tend to only have that moment of self-realization when they're in a a crisis of some kind or are, or maybe you're even seeing like a a trend shift where some of these companies are coming to you earlier on as more like preventative, preventative, Mm. proactive means of designing systems rather than like a, we burnt down part of the house. Can you help us fix it? They're like, hey, can you come in and help us with these blueprints straight out the gate? Are you seeing, are you yeah. seeing any, any t- like when do people come find you? Like what yeah. comes up on their radar that makes them put this on the, on the top of their priority list?
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd say in the last five years, you're definitely seeing a marked shift in more of a proactive seeking out, and being more preventative around, you know, all sorts of things. How can we improve culture? You know, what do we have to do? We want to go to a more flat organization. Is that possible? You know, how do we eliminate some of this command and control in a typical hierarchy? How do we provide leadership training for everybody? Um, You know, how do we improve mental health? How do we promote diversity, equity, inclusion? I I would say, by and large, uh, you're seeing all organizations get really proactive about all of these. And, you know, there, at some point there was just some, there was just some threshold and shift in momentum. And it's probably been the last two to three years where there's been a, there's been a real shift of momentum of, Hey, this is the right thing to do. Now, obviously organizations being organizations and still a part of it, still maturing. Some of it is out of compliance and the fear of getting in trouble. Right. But Mm -hmm. But still, I I would say that a significant enough amount of organizations, again, I just think it's where we are historically now, uh, do have a mindset, a a much more evolved mindset of, hey, we really want to get this right. You know, because I think a lot of them have had experiences of coming out of of being burnt out of, you know, working, not working to live, but living to work. You know, and and, and they, they've experienced the impact it's had on on their lives. Um, so, so they have some first-person personal experience with a lot of, you know, uh, sort of the liability side of not instituting more humanistic awareness uh, as part of, of work-life balance, as part of something that should be integrated into the work experience, like psychological safety. You know, so a lot mm. I do see. Even though some organizations are still operating a bit out of, hey, we don't want to get in trouble. Uh, a lot more organizations are starting to come forward and say, hey, how can we really do this better? I we want to sleep better at night, and we, you know, knowing that people are having the type of experience that that we would want them to have, that they're being treated as humans, they're being treated fairly, and that you know that we really honor their their personal lives. So definitely seeing much more of that, thankfully.
0: Yeah. Yeah, what I hear, what I hear is, I'm in the camp where aim for perfect progress, but be pretty, pretty stoked about the, all the imperfect progress you get a lot. You know, it's like <laughs> if if compliance is the is as far as we can get them right now, I right. will take it because yeah. because the collateral damage of it needing to be all or like the collateral damage is the lives and bodies of historically excluded historically violated people yeah like that's the collateral damage Mm -hmm. and so if like we got to if we got to take that those inches i will take those and we're not obviously going to be happy with it which is why we're couching under the umbrella of compliance but rather than like uh, yeah Yeah.
1: well you know (laughs) it's it's so interesting you know and i could go on about this but It's so interesting because you you really actually tease out something that in certainly in our field of organization development and leadership development and just sort of looking at this humanistic side of organizational life. There's this sort of there are kind of two camps and one camp I think is much more pragmatic. And, you know, I tend to lean toward this camp, which is let's help move the needle. Let's help organizations define the needle and make Mm -hmm. And make definitive concrete changes that move in the right direction because it's what they can take on. Because organizations are incredibly varied beasts and they still have market forces and selection pressures. They still need to survive. And so we have to balance that with them also doing, quote unquote, the right thing and and operating with integrity. Um, So if we can get more small, concrete, meaningful change and help them define the needle and just maybe they set up a program. Okay, great. There was no program before. Now there's a program. They still don't know what the hell they're doing, but they at least have a program in place and maybe they can, you know, let's help them sustain that. So that over time, then it drives awareness. Maybe different leaders come on board and so forth. Another camp is, I think, um, a little more what I would term optimistic is sort of the transformational leadership or transformational um, just in general that, hey, we want to transform values. And I think that's a long-term game. I think that's the marathon. Um, I do think you need both. But sometimes I, I, think, I think we started there as a humanistic field in organizational development and organization development. I think we started there on the, you know, let's transform everybody. And then you find out that human beings just don't work that way. Um, you know, transformation is painful. Um, growth, you know, it's not always painful. It doesn't have to be, but particularly in organizational life, um, it's always sort of a lessons learned environment. So, um, so you need a little bit of both, but I tend toward more of the pragmatic side of helping organizations get small wins and get confident that, Hey, look, we set out to do this. We defined it, we achieved. And now how do we keep going on and how do we keep growing from there? It, it, and again, it's in the vein of how organizations work which is milestone and sort of project driven and that kind of thing. So kind of working with how organizations work and baking in these sort of transformational beacons so that a little bit happens, a little bit happens and then you string it together over time and you've got a much better environment than what you had before.
0: I want to take one more little, little spin on this because I think we're talking about what we can expect But I also think it's really important to highlight what happens when like a person in a position of leadership decides to make comprehensive change from a values-based decision Mm -hmm. space. So I'm thinking of two examples was there was this, I think, I don't know if it was, my friend's from the UK. So I don't know if I'm quoting a a grocery thing about a UK company or in the EU, but They, basically the board got, I mean, they're all over this country and or continent. Can't remember the specifics, (laughs) but they had palm oil in a bunch of their frozen, Mm. or maybe it was a frozen, okay, whatever. Maybe it was a frozen food product, but basically it was brought to their attention. The devastation that palm oil farming is having on the planet Mm. and on orangutan, whatever. Basically the board got together and was like, we're phasing this out within the next six months. And they just made that top-down mm. decision. And within six months, they had completely eliminated the palm oil use in their products. I was like, huh. Mm. Uh, and that one other example I can think of is, um, have you seen the documentary, This Changes Everything? It's uh, I have not. It's, I've okay. heard of it. I haven't well, watched for listening, it yet. highly recommend. But basically, it, w- it came out after the loss The uh, I think it was the ACLU filed the anti-discrimination lawsuit in Hollywood with the studios in Hollywood. And I think at the time it was the CEO of FX read all Mm. of these reports coming out and, you know, cis white guy had no idea that this was happening and just believed the data and top-down decision was like these this is how we're gonna change these are the metrics and FX mm. exploded in like the crew because they started bringing in writers of different genders they started bringing in writers mm. of different ethnicities writers of different races and so the stories changed the, the crew behind camera changed the teams within the company started changing mm. the faces on screen changed and then they started winning all these awards. Like within a year or two, started winning like tons of Golden Globes and mm. <laughs> like all these awards because yeah, and which of course jacked up the company like that. They I think they had unprecedented profits, and so anyway, I just thought like I kind of wanted to flip it on its head and talk a little bit about like yeah, when we're talking about the lowest common denominator, let's be let's be excited when there's imperfect progress. And to anybody who might listen to this someday is like if you're in a leadership position or a position of influence, you could have like massive impact, not just on the quality of lives of the people in the ecosystem of whatever like community or organism it is that or organization it is that you're, you're operating, but you, you might also have like astronomical impact on like the revenue of, and success and growth of, And 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 industrial reputation of the company.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And in fact, it's interesting, about three years ago, I was at a large technology symposium. And one of the uh, things that came up was diversity in in the uh, technology space. And there was a conversation I got into after the symposium was over with some leaders, uh, a couple um, CIOs. There was a kind of a women's tech executive leader forum, so I talked to a couple CIOs that that were part of that, and a few other minority uh, leaders. And the conversation really came up about tying diversity to to the bottom line, to revenue, into the, the profitability, and how that sort of the best practice of selling and getting buy-in on diversity was really tying it to return on investment. And so you you bring up great examples and you know they're really aligned with I think how leaders and and, and it, that's great data to say hey the investment in diversity led to this. I love that because mm-hmm. that's a really concrete example, you know. Um, so I think the the challenge on a lot of leaders and you know this is sort of been the consensus of of women and minority leaders is that, look, we sell diversity by, by telling existing boards, leadership, CEOs, and so forth that diversity in our industry is going to make an impact because it's going to broaden our perspectives and bring forth new ideas and new ways of being in the market and existing in the market that just may not have existed because of one sort of slice of shared experience that may be insular from other different types of experience. So it's a great selling point and one that is very, very, you know, it's sort of socialized. The cautionary side of it also is for leaders to consult with experts in the field and not to make too hasty of a decision once they have sort of this enlightenment moment. I've worked with a (laughs) a few leaders who have this sort of, oh, everybody Everybody should be equal and fair. And so it should look like this. And they eliminate their, um, their leadership and nobody has titles anymore. And they open up their work systems and it's sort of kind of a free for all. And I've seen some organizations do this and go through sort of a Lord of the Flies experience and um, have complete structural breakdown. So cautionary tale, all we seek Professionals that can help you at least do some kind of discovery impact analysis on if we do this, what are some possible scenarios? What are the pros and cons? Um, You know, what are, you know, let's do a SWOT analysis. Well, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of this opportunities and threats? What does this actually look like if we take this course of action? And do we have a plan B and a plan C? to kind of go in, um, if think when things go awry, cause it's not, if it's when they, they will go sideways, but so you try to have contingency plans in place. But I think if the leader goes in judiciously, you know, and, and gets a couple different opinions and takes the ride with some, and gets some collaborative expertise along the journey, I, I think it's the absolute thing to do. And, um, you know, at least taking the ride will open up and at least doing the discovery and the assessment portion of that will open the company up and expand the horizons to, um, I think there's just new things to discover. You may discover that, um, hey, you may turn over a new market. Again, you know, you may target a new uh, customer, a new audience for your services or product. So there are all sorts of things that can be a benefit Things like adding in diversity, or um, just shifting to a more equitous environment—you know, given the right sort of you know cultural guardrails to make sure that people still experience psychological and emotional safety—so, so it's the right thing to do, done judiciously.
0: Yeah, I like it. Do it because it's right. There might be an amazing profit byproduct. But do it intelligently, y'all. <laughs>
1: yeah, do it intelligently. Do it until. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I've seen yeah. a couple leaders. You know, they have the epiphany. They wake up and say, "This is the you know, we're we're blowing this thing up. We're blowing this shit up, and this is what we're gonna do." And it's like, ah, you know, it. Yeah, there's just there's there's the sensitivity <laughs> factor.
0: <laughs> okay, I have For two sure. questions because there's the first was the. I want to clarify a couple of terms you've said. So one, you said CIO. Is that chief information officer?
1: Yes. Yes, it is.
0: Okay. And my other question is, you. so we've said psychological safety. I feel like I know what that means, but that might be a term new to someone listening to this. When you say like wanting to create spaces where people feel psychologically safe, what does that mean for somebody that maybe has doesn't like work with that lingo or hasn't heard it before?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Several years ago, Google did a a massive, they instituted a massive project around factors that help people work better, have better experiences in the workplace, help them be more motivated, productive, engaged, resilient, all those things. And they measured a lot of stuff. This is, you know, this is sort of a... um, you know, organizational uh, research project. I think it lasted a couple years, but the general result out of that was something that they teased out specifically as psychological safety and that all of that sort of the, 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 the gist of psychological safety is that I feel like when I come to work, it's not a complete stressor work is a, a, generative part of my experience. I don't go home with sort of an extra sense of worry uh, about work. Work isn't depleting um, my well-being. It's just sort of general. I don't feel like I have to look over my shoulder. Um, You know, I don't feel like I'm going to be ousted. You know, all the stuff that we tend to feel historically on the playground. You know, I, I talked earlier about, right, it's, it's, it really is this historical legacy of how human beings have treated each other in groups. And there is this sort of group dynamic, there are bully dynamics involved in that. there's pressure and peer pressure involved in that. All those things that that we feel even subliminally, because we've all experienced it in our family of origins, we've experienced it on the playground coming up through the education system and just in our friends and groups in general, they, those all sort of get magnified at work because work is tied to our livelihoods. And livelihood is our energy and ability to make a good life, and so when you know those dynamics really combine to form some level on a spectrum of psychological safety of, you know, on on the most on the optimal end. I you know I really do like coming to work, even if I don't love coming to work. It is work, you know, the day to day is what it is. But I like coming to work. I have meaningful relationships. I feel I feel safe. I don't feel like anybody's after me. Um, I feel supported versus on the other end, I'm always looking over my shoulder, you know, I'm I'm sort of paranoid. So it's that kind of spectrum of these really, you know, these group dynamics that we're all familiar with, you know, typified in the work situation.
0: Yeah, that's super helpful. I can feel it in my body, the difference.
1: Yes, right? (laughs)
0: Yeah, when you feel like an island versus Uh when it's like, yeah, we're all doing this together. If something goes wrong, there's There's like, there's like solutions available because, because we're in it together. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. I can talk to a supervisor, you know, colleagues, all that good stuff. All that good stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, Mark, this is awesome. We're coming up to time. I know one is if anybody's listened to this, I would highly encourage you to reach uh, out to Mark, especially if this is something that you feel like your company would benefit from, no matter how small, I would say reach out to Mark. The best place to find him is going to be on LinkedIn, which we will share um, a link in the show notes so so you can find him. And I wanted to just is there anything that you want to say to close out here, Mark? Any final thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think... Uh... First of all, thank you for having this conversation uh, with me, theor This has been uh, fantastic. And, you know, I know the past couple of years have been rough uh, on everyone and the future of work has always seemed to be uncertain. Um, but I do think it's moving in a direction that we're going to come out on the other side. I think there are new opportunities it's a little scary, but I think it's moving in the direction of something that I think we could have only dreamed about uh, two or three decades ago. We are in a transition. It is a bit wild and chaotic right now, but it is moving in the right direction. Um, and part of the work we try to do is to help people navigate some of those realities and, and come out on the other side. So everybody hang in there. We're getting to a better place. Thank you. Promise.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to another episode, you beautiful weirdo. It can be lonely being different, but here at Club Weirdo, that's what brings us together. So if you can take two minutes to subscribe and leave a review, that is the most powerful way that you can help us grow and help more beautiful weirdos like yourself find a place to call home. Thank you so much. And until next time, stay weird.